If you've noticed lately, we've had some high-profile guests on the show, and today, that's no different. And that's because of you. Here's the reality. The only way we get these type of guests to come on the show is that when they look at the podcast, they see a lot of ratings. And that is just the truth. So if you would, please take 10 seconds and leave us a rating so we can continue to bring on amazing guests that would mean the world to me and your future listening experience. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Eric Corum, founder of AIM7. Welcome back to The Blueprint, where we distill cutting-edge science, leadership, and life skills into simple tactics optimized for your busy lifestyle and goals. Is technology really ruining our lives and stealing our focus? Do you feel like you can never get done what you want to get done? Maybe you sit down and do some deep work, and the next thing you know, you're scrolling Instagram or checking email. Is that the new normal? Well, best-selling author Nir Eyal says absolutely not. With over a decade researching human behavior and writing about habit-forming products, Nir reveals how to take back control of our attention and choose the life we want to live. He equips us with science-backed techniques to respond to internal triggers, harness discomfort, and proactively direct our attention. AOL provides a myth-busting perspective that gives you agency in this digital age. This conversation will empower you to use technology on your terms and to do what matters most. So let's get right to it. Let's lean in and learn from the best. Near the pandemic forced many of us to work from home. We had this shift, which kind of started blurring the lines now between our work and personal life. How has this shift impacted our susceptibility to distractions? And what strategies can we employ to maintain our focus? So I don't know if working from home necessarily increased distraction. I think it just changed distraction, meaning that we know that before COVID, the number one source of distraction at the workplace was other people. It wasn't the pings and dings of technology. It was somebody tapping you on the shoulder and asking you for that TPS report or telling you about the (laughs) office gossip. That was the number one source of distraction. Well, if you're working from home, it's not your boss or your colleagues that are distracting you. It could be your kids. It could be your pets. It could be all kinds of other distractions. So I wouldn't necessarily say it's gotten better or worse. It has changed. Now, what do we do about that home setting where distraction can be uh, different now? So one of the things that I hear a lot from people who work from home is that they love their kids to death, but kids can be a tremendous source of distraction. So what do we do? So one thing that we can do is to interrupt the interruption. So in every copy of my book, Indistractable, there is a piece of cardstock that you can tear out. It's this bright red piece of cardstock. You tear it out, you fold into thirds, and you put it on your computer monitor. And it tells your kids, your spouse, hey, I'm indistractable right now. Please do not interrupt me unless something terrible has happened. So in my household, the rule is you cannot interrupt unless you're bleeding. That's what we tell my daughter. (laughs) right? You can't interrupt unless you're bleeding. And to be perfectly fair, they don't know what you're working on, right? When they see you hunched over your desk working on your computer, they don't know if you're listening to uh, a podcast or if you're uh, working on a big report or they, they don't know what you're doing. So having that explicit signal, by the way, this works in the office setting as well, that tells your colleagues or your family, hey, I'm indistractable at the moment, please don't interrupt. Now, what if you have small kids, right? What if you have very young children? So what we did in my household when my daughter was just six years old is that we bought what we call now the concentration crown. The concentration crown is this, maybe it costs six bucks on Amazon. It's this like princess little headdress that my wife wears. It's, you know, very thin and maybe costs $6. And it has these little LED lights on it. There's a picture of it in the book. 
And we told our daughter when she was just six years old, when you see mommy wearing the concentration crown, that means that she cannot be interrupted no more than the next 30 minutes. That's the time block that we allowed for us to do work at home. So my daughter picked this up right away and we found that it was incredibly helpful because when you see mommy wearing the concentration crown, you know that's time that she can't be interrupted. And again, we go back to that unless someone's bleeding rule. And not only is it very effective, turns out, on children, it's super effective on husbands as well. So it's worked out very well for us. <laughs> I love this. I think this is a wonderful idea. For those folks that may have not read the book, which you definitely re- need to, and as you were talking about the red piece of tear cardboard, that was the first thing I noticed when I opened the book. It's like, what in the heck is this? It's a great tool that you guys have provided with the book. But a lot of people are blaming their phones now for distraction. This thing is just ruining my life. Is it true? Is your phone really ruining your life? I think one of the biggest problems is that we give over all of our agency and control to this belief that, frankly, is really perpetuated by the media that your phone is controlling your attention, that social media is hacking your brain, that it's stealing your focus. It's not stealing your focus. We are giving it away. And of course, traditional media, right, the television, the radio, the newspaper, of course, they propagate this kind of narrative that it's all technology's fault. Guess why? Because they're in the same business, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you think the news media makes their money? They sell your attention to advertisers just like the social media companies do. And there's nothing wrong with any of these businesses. What we need to do is to make sure that we use them as opposed to them using us, whether it's traditional media like television or radio or new media like social media. We just have to make sure that we use it on our schedule and according to our values not someone else's, certainly not the media companies. So what this requires, therefore, is that we understand how to become indistractable. And I want to stop this ridiculous blaming and shaming, thinking that everything is somebody else's fault. There's nothing I can do about it because everybody's brain is being hijacked. We're all addicted. That is rubbish. It is ridiculous. In fact, as Henry Ford is attributed to saying, that whether you believe you can or cannot, you're right. If you wanted to do exactly what the tech companies want, if you want to get out the message that the tech companies want you to believe, it's that you're powerless, that you're addicted. You know, the word addiction comes from the Latin addictio, which means slave. Mm-hmm. So they want you to believe there's nothing you can do, right? Because then because you just give in. Is, exactly. This We know of this psychological phenomenon called learned helplessness. When someone believes there's nothing to be done, guess what they do? Nothing. So the worst thing you can do is to believe in these chicken little uh, tech critics that tell you that your brain is being hijacked and that your focus is being stolen because as soon as you believe that, well, you've lost because you're not going to do anything about it. So what I want to do is to make people indistractable. Indistractable is meant to sound like indestructible. It's meant to sound like a noun, something that you can proclaim you are. And so once you do proclaim that, this is part of the techniques that we talk about in the book around how identity can shape your behavior, then it becomes something that you, in fact, want to live out because you are indistractable. Yeah, there's a a great paper by Marie Spreckley on people that lose weight and keep it off. The reason they were able to keep it off was that, you know, they consistently tracked or had goals, but they had an identity change. They started identifying as somebody that is a healthy person. And I think this is really critical because unless you have this identity shift, you're going to be like, like you just said, a kind of a slave to the phone. Sorry, I was going to say that uh, at the end of the day, behavior change is identity change. 
Mm. Behavior change is identity change. Long-term, if you want to change your behavior, you have to see yourself differently. And we've been through this before with something far more addictive. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I grew up in the 80s. And the 1980s, I remember everybody's living room had an ashtray. You remember this? We're about the same age, right? Yes. Everybody's living room, whether you smoked or not. People, kids today will not believe this is true, but this is absolutely what I grew up with. Everybody's home had an ashtray, whether they smoked or not. And I remember one day, my mom decided to get rid of the ashtrays and one of her friends came over and took out a pack of cigarettes and was about to light up. She said, oh, I'm sorry, we are non-smokers. You see that identity? That's who we are, right? We are non-smokers. If you would like to smoke, if you could kindly go outside, right? <gasps> she was so offended, this lady, that my mom was asking her to go outside. But of course, today, you wouldn't dream of someone coming over to your living room and lighting up a cigarette. Well, yeah. why? What changed? Was there a law that said you can't smoke in someone's private residence? No. What changed was our social norms. People started calling themselves, like my mom, non-smokers. You can't smoke here. And so that's what we need to do when it comes to our technological distractions. We need to be unafraid of saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm indistractable. I'm not going to reply to every message within 30 seconds. You know why? I'm indistractable. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm indistractable. So if we're going to have lunch together, we're going to be fully present both in body and mind. And I'm not going to check my phone, and I expect you not to either, because I'm indistractable. And you say, well, that's so weird. That's so different. Is it really? Is it so different from someone calling themselves a non-smoker or someone calling themselves a vegetarian, right? How many accommodations do we make for our friends who don't eat meat? right? Is that strange? No, it's just the way they live their life. Or someone who has religious preferences. If someone's Muslim and wears a hijab, do we make a big deal of it? No, it's just who they are. It's their identity. So it's time for all of us to proclaim that we are indistractable because we are far more powerful than these technologies than we would think we are. If you are a busy person with a wearable like an Apple Watch or a Ring, you want to turn that data into personalized and actionable recommendations and plans to improve your physical and mental fitness, check out AIM7. For a limited time, you can try AIM7 for free for seven days, and then your first month is just a dollar by using the code BLUEPRINT at checkout on our site. That's BLUEPRINT in all caps. Join the over 500 people that are experiencing improvements in sleep, energy, more motivation, and less stress. Check out IM7. The link is in the show notes. One of the things in the book that really um, got me, when you start talking about when you start feeling that pull to the technology or whatever the distraction is, okay, start understanding like what the root of it is. That was really powerful for me. You know, if I'm going to have somebody on the show, I'm going to do my research. And then I started reading the book and I'm getting into this. I'm like, okay, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. And then when I started, it's almost like a mindfulness practice. It's like noting. Mm -hmm. And so I was in the car one day. This is actually something right out of the book. Stopped at the light and I went to grab my phone and I was like, what are you doing? Mm. Why are you doing this? What is the reason for noting these things? What is that going to help us do? Let's start with defining what is distraction, really, because we, before we can begin to become indistractable, we have to understand what we're up against. So let's really start from what the term even means. Where does the word come from? One of the best ways to know if you understand a term is to know, do you know the opposite of that term? And so what is the opposite? What's the antonym of distraction? Most people say the opposite of distraction is focus. That's not exactly right. In fact, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction, if you look at the origin of the word, is traction. Of course it is, right? Traction and 
distraction. Both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six-letter word, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action, reminding us distraction is not something that happens to us, but in fact, it is an action that we ourselves take. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that move you closer to your values and become the kind of person you want to become. Everything else is a distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do, further away from your goals, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this isn't just semantics. This is super important because I would argue that any action that you decide in advance with intent is traction. So Mm -hmm. we need to stop moralizing and medicalizing these behaviors. If you want to watch Netflix, enjoy. If you want to scroll the internet or watch YouTube or play video games, why would I tell you that somehow playing video games is morally inferior to watching a football game on TV, which somehow nobody seems to think is melting your brain, right? (laughs) Because it's normal, it's old. We've been doing it for generations. So somehow it's not weird anymore. Whatever you want to do with your time and attention, it's not up to me or anyone else to tell you what to do. It's your life. But what I want you to do is to plan that time with intent. As Dorothy Parker said, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So you got traction, then you got distraction. And one of the biggest pitfalls that we see people falling into is that they think, well, if it's a good task, right? If I'm working on something that's morally okay, well, then I'm being productive. Then that's traction. No, if it's not what you said you were going to do, it's just as bad of a distraction. I'll give you a perfect example. For years, I would sit down at my desk. I would say, okay, I'm gonna work on this big project that I've been delaying. I'm not gonna procrastinate. Nothing's gonna get in my way. Here we go. I'm gonna get started right now. But first, let me check some email. Let me just scroll that Slack channel real quick. Let me just catch up on the day's news. I need to be an informed citizen. Let me do all this stuff before the task that I said I was going to do. And of course, then 30, 45 minutes, maybe an hour later, I still haven't done the one thing I said I was going to do with my time and attention. So just because it's a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. That's the most dangerous kind of distraction because you don't even realize you've been tricked into going off track. So just because it's a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. If it's not what you said you were going to do, it is by definition a distraction. So now we've got traction, we've got distraction. Now I want you to think about these two arrows bisecting, pointing to the middle of where traction and distraction split. These are called our triggers. And then we have two kinds of triggers. We have external triggers. These are the things in our outside environment that tell us what to do next. It's all the pings, the dings, the rings, all of these things that tell us what to do next. Now, Would you believe that even though that's what most people blame, right? They blame all the things outside of themselves. Studies find that external triggers only account for 10% of our distractions. 10% are because of the pings, dings, and rings. What's the other 90%? The other 90% of the time that we get distracted, it's not because of what's happening outside of us, but rather what I learned in my five years of research and work on this book was that most distraction, 90% of distraction begins from within. These are called internal triggers. What are internal triggers? Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape. Loneliness, Mm. boredom, fatigue, anxiety, uncertainty. These uncomfortable sensations that we want to escape with oftentimes these amazing devices in our pockets. So what that means therefore, if we know that 90% of our distractions begin from within, that means that the first step to becoming indistractable must be to master those internal triggers or they will become your master. We have to figure out what to do in response to those 
uncomfortable emotional states, hence the term responsibility, what we will do in response to those states, so that we don't try and escape them with distraction, but rather we lean into them and use them as rocket fuel to propel us towards traction. It gives you agency over the situation. It also makes you more self-aware as a human being. So like when I reached for that phone while I was in my car, I noted boredom. I'm like, Eric, maybe it's good to be bored and just to look around you. You know, I practice mindfulness, but then I started thinking about the moments that I'm shifting away from what I really want to be doing. And this has been a powerful practice for me. So I really appreciate that. And the other thing that was really helpful for me, too, was the 10-minute rule. You want to explain what the 10-minute rule is? Because I think it's wonderful. There are over a dozen different techniques you can use to master these internal triggers. One of them, one of my favorite, turns out one of yours as well, Eric, is called the 10-minute rule. And the 10-minute rule comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. It's been around for decades and decades. And the idea here is that you want to create a bit of space between you and that otherwise distracting temptation. So the idea here is that when you feel the urge, which by the way, you don't control, this is very, very important, you do not control your feelings. You do not control your urges towards distraction any more than you might try and control the urge to sneeze, right? If I told you try and control the urge to sneeze, you can't, you already felt that urge, right? What you can do is decide how you will respond to that urge. Again, hence the term responsibility. So what are you gonna do? When you feel the urge to sneeze, are you gonna sneeze all over everyone and make them sick? No, you take out a tissue and you cover your face because that's the responsible thing to do. So the same goes with these uncomfortable sensations. When you feel bored, when you feel anxious, when you feel lonely, are you going to try and escape it with the news, with a shot of booze, with football, with Facebook? Are you gonna try and escape that discomfort? Or are you going to decide what to do with it on your own terms? So again, mastering the internal triggers so they don't become your masters. Because remember, this is a super important point. All human behavior is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort. Everything you do, everything you do is about the desire to escape discomfort, which therefore means that time management is pain management. Money management is pain management. Weight management is pain management because all human behavior stems from a desire to escape discomfort. Even the desire to feel good is psychologically destabilizing. So what you have to have are tools ready to go so that when you feel that discomfort, you you say, okay, I know what to do with it. All right, I feel bored. Am I gonna check my phone incessantly or am I gonna do something more productive with it, something that I feel good about and I don't look back with regret? So one of those tools that you can use is called the 10-minute rule. And the 10-minute rule says, that when you feel that discomfort, right, when you feel that urge to get distracted, the idea here is that you pause, you note that sensation, and now you have a choice to make. You can tell yourself, okay, I can get back to that distraction. I can do whatever I want. I'm a a grown adult. I can (laughs) smoke that cigarette. I can eat the piece of chocolate cake if I'm on a diet. I can check email, whatever that distraction is. I can do it, but not right now. I'm gonna wait for just... 10 minutes. Okay. You can do, you can wait on anything for just 10 minutes. 10 minutes is nothing, right? And if it's too much, try the five minute rule. And the idea here is that by just waiting those 10 minutes. So what I do, I set an alarm. I said, okay, set an alarm for 10 minutes. And now what I have to do is to either get back to the task at hand, whenever I'm ready, I can get back to the task at hand or do what's called surfing the urge. Surfing the urge acknowledges that these sensations, that these uncomfortable internal triggers, these emotional states, they're like waves. They crest and then they subside. 
they're never around forever, but that's not what we think about them, right? We think, oh, if I'm angry, I'm always going to be angry. If I'm bored, I'm always going to be bored. If something is, if I'm lonely, I'm always, no. These sensations are like waves. So your job is to simply surf the urge like a surfer on a surfboard. So for example, if I'm writing, and writing is really hard work. I've been a professional writer now for over a decade. There's no such thing as a writing habit. It's always hard work. <laughs> and all I want to do is go like check email or check the news or check social media or do anything but the actual writing. But what I tell myself in that span, so I set the timer for 10 minutes, I take a deep breath. And for me, what works really well to surf the urge is repeating a mantra. Now, I just made up my own mantra that's meaningful to me. You can steal it. You can make up your own. doesn't matter. What I tell myself is, this is what it feels like to get better. This is what it feels like to get better. Just a few breaths, repeating this mantra, asking myself a few questions, and I teach you exactly how to have this dialogue with yourself in the book about how to reframe that internal trigger. So for example, before I did this line of work and this line of research, I always felt really ashamed of how I felt. Oh, if I was a real author, I wouldn't feel bored. I wouldn't feel distracted. There must be something wrong with me. No, 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 I don't shame myself that way anymore. I've reframed that internal trigger to say to myself, you know what? I'm feeling anxious right now because this is super important to me. Right? And if it was easy, everyone would do it. So I've reimagined the internal trigger to get me through that 10 minutes of surfing the urge. And you know what, Eric? Nine times out of 10, after maybe four or five minutes, I'm back to the task at hand. I'm back to writing. And of course, over time, what you're teaching yourself is you're teaching yourself that, hey, I can wait. Right? These things don't have control over me. I control them. And then, of course, the 10-minute rule becomes the 12-minute rule, becomes the 15-minute rule. And you're training yourself to understand, I have agency. I can do it. And that's really the most important lesson around that tool. Thanks again for listening to the Blueprint Podcast. And if while you were listening to the show, you thought of somebody that, man, they would love to be indistractable. Please take a picture of the podcast art and share this podcast with them. Also, I highly recommend that you grab a copy of Nir's book. I got both of his books. I read them immediately when they came out. They are absolutely phenomenal and you're going to get a lot of use out of them. Thanks again for listening to The Blueprint and I'll catch you on the next episode.